everybody. I'm Ralph Ben-Murgy. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. As I clarify every uh, week on the program, uh, I'm not a rabbi. Uh, but if I was, I wouldn't be that kind of rabbi. And I think I know a few rabbis who have now taken offense at me saying that, and I've tried to make them happy again, and it hasn't worked because we're not a happy people. We're, we're a people who have holidays where people try to kill us, they don't succeed, and then we eat. And that's kind of the way it works. Um, I have been enjoying conversations with all kinds of people, but right now I'm in this strange world, this unbelievable world, which is sort of, I'm, I'm trying to look at this as um, a global sabbatical. You know, in the Jewish tradition, every uh, seventh day is the day of being, and the other six are the days of doing. I think everybody's in the point now where they're having to reevaluate what does doing look like when you're not commuting every day, when you're not running for this and buying that. And how many of us have said to everybody we love, I don't have time. I'm sorry. I'd love to get together. I just don't have the time. And now we can't get together unless it's virtual, but we do have time. And in that time, I think there's been a lot of reflection going on for a lot of people. This is the existential crisis that nobody saw coming. The one that we've been talking about is mostly about climate change. And I do like the idea of using the language of this particular crisis for that one, which is when we're finished with this, can we flatten the curve on climate change next, if you don't mind? If we can marshal our, our, our emotional, spiritual, and physical resources to combat this particular virus, perhaps we can bring more urgency to something that we don't think is on the doorstep and, and about to kill us. It's odd as well that Passover has just happened, and it, this feels biblical, this COVID-19 event. And it does have that sense of the angel of death hovering over the door, and did you paint your, your door frame with blood so nobody would kill you? And, you know, it's just also, you can't smell it, taste it, see it, hear it, but it's there somewhere, and it might kill you. And that's what's given us this urgency and maybe perhaps something more positive as well. Um, that being said, I always wanted to have a nice conversation about the spiritual nature of life itself with uh, Bob Ray. You may think, well, Bob Ray was a politician. Why would you want to talk to a politician about the spirit? Um, but uh, I have always enjoyed my conversations with, with Mr. Ray, uh, going back to when he was the Premier of Ontario, and I actually went in to uh, uh, interview him, and I had this big thing called a NAGRA, it was a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, mother of a tape recorder. And I brought it in, and I sat it down beside me, and I had the microphone, and I'm asking this Premier these questions. And kindly, the Premier pointed to the tape recorder and said, you actually haven't started playing it yet you might want to actually press the button <laughs> so, uh i just sort of you know shrunk back into my my ego became very small which is a, a good spiritual moment for anyone uh and i turned the tape recorder on and we started again so joining me now the former premier of ontario the former leader interim uh, as such of the liberal party of canada a man who is so accomplished i'm not going to try to say all the different things that he's done suffice to say He's had an active and in many ways, uh, I would hope, a deeply rewarding life in, in public life and in private life as well. Uh, Mr. Bob Ray joins me now. Hi, how are you? Hello, Ralph. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Uh, your thoughts on our present situation and the COVID-19 thing? Oh, my gosh. I, I, think, you've, I think you've described it uh, in, very good, in a very good way. I think you've... Um, 
I think you've underlined what a lot of us are feeling, and that is that it is a, a very unusual moment. Um, to be, to, <laughs> it does force you to think more. It gives us a lot more time. We have more time on our hands, um, not all of it being used productively, um, but as much as I suppose as much as people feel they can. Um, and I do think it's it's a it's a moment of reflection about ourselves and about our society. And I agree with you one hundred percent about climate change. I mean, I think one of the great um, it, it's really a conundrum. It's it's a really a challenge with climate change. Is that people? Um, if you ask people, you know, would you like to live in a world where um, you know terrible weather kept happening and um, it got hotter and hotter and, and uh, things dried up and, and flooding and, and all kinds of awful things to the globe. Would you like that to happen? Everybody would say, no, that's, that's not a good thing. I, 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 I don't want the weather to change dramatically. I don't want people to starve. I don't want um, all of the horrendous consequences of climate change to happen. And then you say to people, okay, well, there's certain big things that need to happen. And this is the big things that need to happen. And it's going to take unprecedented coordination and uh, working together globally and working together locally and all that stuff. And people kind of, as soon as you start talking about that, their eyes start glazing over it and they say, you know, is there, is there not a simpler way to do this? Have you not got a simpler, easier way to, to deal with it? And and I I think that's part of our problem around uh, around everything, and certainly around COVID-19, there's a lot of blaming going on. Um, there's a lot of people looking back and saying, you know, you didn't do this uh, early enough. You didn't respond quickly enough. You didn't see the signs of warning. And you sort of say, yeah. And, and, and one of the dilemmas for people is that politically people would not have accepted huge restrictions at the beginning because they said, oh, it's happening in China. It's not really happening here. And so the politicians had a real problem. And the problem was, we, we know what we have to do, uh, or we're, we're coming to understand what we think we have to do. How do we persuade enough other people that this is what we have to do? And ultimately, of course, people by and large in Canada, certainly, uh, have accepted the uh, really quite extraordinary measures which governments have had to take to essentially say to people, stay at home and don't do anything. Uh, and, and for most people, it means stay at home and don't earn any money, don't make a living, don't have a job, uh, which is very painful. Then governments have to say, yeah, but we're going to help you with that. And then, they, then as they go on, they realize this is really complicated. Like it's a, a whole lot of different things. You, you, you take this away, that happens, and then you take that away and this happens. And there's all kinds of knock-on effects and it, it all starts to yeah. come together. So you know, you, you know, there's something you said there that triggered something for me, which is something that clergy and politicians have in common is with either congregations or populations, you, you are always weary of telling people truths that they can't digest, that people want to hear certain things and they don't want to hear other things. So some of what you were talking about was this whole idea. So what do we do when we're not willing to hear 
what we really need to do and instead keep wanting to be fed this sort of habitual consumptive society that we've created. Well, you know, I, I mean, I think in watching people like President Trump and, and our own prime minister and other leaders deal with this, I mean, um, there's a certain kind of, I don't know, instinctive sense that people have to say, um, you're not ready to hear this, so I'm going to tell you that everything's okay. Uh, everything's fine. Uh, and everything will be okay. And, and everything's fine. Everything's good. Or as the president used to say, everything's under control, yeah. you, know, you know, which is <laughs> when you think about it, just a completely nutty thing to say about anything because nothing's really under control, you know, they, but it's a, it's a, it's a phrase that people sometimes use to kind of make you feel more comfortable. It doesn't make me feel more comfortable because it only makes me feel that, Oh, oh this is a guy who actually thinks maybe it is under control when everybody can see that, that it isn't. And you're right. I mean, there are moments and times when people are prepared to accept things and there are moments in time when they're not. And I think that the, the political kind of dilemma of, of COVID-19 has been to, to, to be ahead of people because you have, because you're going to be ahead of people because you've got more information than most people have because most people are not spending all their time thinking about this or, or though, although I would note that on Twitter and on the internet generally, um, they're actually, have you noticed that the number of epidemiologists that there are today? There's like <laughs> millions of them. I never knew there were so many, many, many million yeah. epidemiologists. It's just but that's the need quite for, amazing. But that idea about control is 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 about fear, right? It, sure, it's totally. The, the need to hold on to something. And, you know, in the proto-fascist world, that is the number one uh, order uh, of priority is to say, I've got the train's going to run on time. I've got this thing under control, and in the chaos, either financial or emotional or personal, uh, we also want someone to tell us that they're strong and that they're going to do things, and we're willing to listen in ways we haven't before. You know, a preacher can do that. And I was in Joel Osteen's mega church in Houston, and this is a guy telling you that prosperity is going to be for you if you believe in the Lord Jesus. And there were 35,000 people on that weekend there, and they believed it because they wanted a sense of community, and they wanted a sense of order, and that there was a purpose to their lives, right? Yeah, and I think it's also, I mean, I think the thing that I worry about uh, politically is that um, out of great disorder, um, name the revolution, um, eventually people get fed up and say, I actually don't want this much disorder uh, and this much change and this much revolution. What I really want is stability. So um, send in the army. So Napoleon succeeds yeah. the French Revolution and terrible dictatorship succeeds the Russian Revolution and, and on we go. And, and I think that out of this um, disruptive situation, um, we face some choices. I mean, one of the choices of course will be things will just go back to normal and, and everybody, all the people who say, oh, life will never be the same again. There's a kind of a, a tremendous tendency in society to just say, no, no, we'll just get back to the way it was. I think that's going to be difficult in this situation. Um, and then the other one is to say, no, I must have order and we must have, you know, strong leadership and all coming back from the, from the top and from this, you know, from the center kind of command and control kind of, kind of language. 
And then, and this is the hopeful side, this is sort of my, my little pitch here. I mean, I hope that one of the things that happens is that people start to realize how much of our response to COVID-19 has been about a sense of mutual obligation. People are taking care of one another. I mean, we're getting to know our neighbors better than we ever did before. I, I didn't know that I was part of an elderly group, but we have people who say, well, you're not supposed to go out at all. Do you mind if we go to the liquor store for you? Or would you mind if we get you some groceries? And I mean, it's wonderful. You just say, this is mm. great, thank you. And, and uh, you know, people, people take care of each other more. Um, and I think we're seeing that in, in governments, people are, I mean, the amount of money which government is now prepared to spend um, is, is on a scale of a hundred to where, where it was before. Now, we got to figure out how, eventually we're going to figure out, well, how the hell are we going to pay for this? But right now, there isn't a political leader out there on the right or the left or in any of the spectrum in Canada or anywhere else who's really saying, stop, you got to stop spending this money. Don't give people the support they need. Don't help people who are unemployed. Don't help the businesses that are going bankrupt. Stop spending the money. That's not the direction of thinking at the moment. What everybody's saying is just let her rip and we'll worry about paying for it afterwards. There's Interesting this, change. There's this guy I know who wrote this thing a while ago. While the public good is partly pursued by accepting the appetite for gain, gain alone is not enough. People will not accept being treated as commodities. They'll insist on being recognized as citizens, members of families, cultures, and broader communities. They will insist on their rights. You're the guy. Right. In uh, the three questions. I, I, I read it and I thought, I don't know if I actually think that's the way this thing has worked out for us because we are commodities. I mean, if you think about the idea even of just as a person, you're paying for the internet, right? You're paying your Wi-Fi. And yet you're the commodity being sold on the Wi-Fi, on the internet. You right. are the intellectual property that you're giving, you're literally paying someone to mine you. And that extractive kind of capitalism that we've been involved with for decades now doesn't actually make us more sensitized to each other. This is like a good blackout that's going on for a long time where you just unplug everything and then turn around and look at everybody and go, right. But are we capable of maintaining this without the crisis can we be that compassionate person who's not a commodity and doesn't treat others i and thou can we get to an i and thou instead of an i and it is it possible well that's the big question i mean i think i think it, the reality is that I, I think that there will always be an element of i it okay there will always be an element in which we our relationships are about um using other people uh, for our own purposes. Um, you know, we, we hire people to do things for us. We, and as time goes on, we begin to learn more about who they are and what they're really going through. And then we say, well, I know you too well. So, uh, you know, I'm going to do more here and more, but uh, there's always an element of society, I think, but I think what, what we lose in that is, um, is, is being able to really connect with, um, with people and uh, really understand the emotional linkages and ties that exist. And I think, you know, that's what gave rise to socialist and social democratic movements, but even liberal movements, people saying, you know, we, we, we don't just see the world through this um, uh, I-it 
commodification, what, you know, what good are you to me lens, we see the world through a different, uh, a different lens and, and a, a bigger one. Is it the only one? Do we always do it? Do we fall back sometimes on, on uh, other ways? Yeah, of course we do. But, you know, part of what I was trying to say in the three questions was, and the three questions are Hillel's three questions going back a few thousand years. But he was really saying, look, you have to be for yourself. You can't, you can't, you can't expect others to be for you if you're not prepared to be for yourself. And, and, and the second thing is, but you can't just be for yourself. And the third is, is if not now, when? And I think that, that, that those three questions have always stuck with me as almost like a kind of lodestar, like a kind of thing that I've just hung on to in, in, in listening to people and in trying to, trying to get to a better place. Um, so many situations where I've had to encourage people to advocate for themselves. Like you, you have to advocate for yourself. And interestingly enough, most recently, I, in, in talking to people about a, a particular refugee challenge, um, meeting with refugees who a few numbers have come to Canada and they're saying, you know, can the government do this? Can the government do that? Can we do this? Can we do that? And it seems to me, you know, one of the things that started to happen is that people realize, well, we have to argue, we have to be our own advocates. And I've said exactly, you absolutely have to be your own advocates. It doesn't mean that nobody else has an obligation to listen to you. It's just that they won't even know who you are until you tell them, until you advocate for yourself. You can't expect other people to do that without prodding and pushing. But, you know, prodding and pushing is not enough. You've, you've got to look at where does, where does the collective interest come in? And I think that's one of the key issues that we're, we're going to be looking at as a, as, a, as a country and as a global society is what, well, what is it exactly do we, what do we owe each other now? What's, how are we going to go forward on, on all these questions? So the social contract itself, I had this feeling in 2008 that um, the social contract at, the, at that moment uh, was broken, that we were told if we um, showed up and shut up and performed, we would have a decent life and we would have enough for our children and that they would do better than we would. And then after 2008, it was kind of like neoliberalism did a face plant on Wall Street and everybody just looked at the corpse and said, nothing to see here. Let's move on and went right back to business as usual. And I'm wondering, are we going to just, once we're out of the woods here and there's a vaccine, do we just go, anyway, what was I going to buy? What am I going to do next? How am I going to get ahead? What am, you know, are we just going to, by human nature, move ourselves back into this culture of inadequacy, which is what you need if you're going to sell people things. They can't be good enough as they are. Do we go right back to it? Well, I think that's the question. Uh, I, I do. I agree with your analysis that we we collective the collective we did not learn a whole lot from two thousand and eight and nine, uh, and um, we there was not the kind of political reaction uh, to it on a sustained basis uh, that was required. I think globally, and particularly, I think. Uh, in the United States, where it was sustained for a while with President Obama, but um, uh, you know he was succeeded by Trump, and so you you know Trump is the sort of the the um, the epitome of 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 the world of excess. You know, I mean, he just that's just what what it's all yeah. about. And so you 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 have to say when you look, for example, at basic measures like 
the level of inequality, the gap between what people make uh, in a factory and what what the head of the corporation makes, and the way in which you know this is this is exponentially around the world become a, a central issue, um, and yet the politics that follow from that have not really fully taken place yet. And we'll see now with COVID-19. I saw an excellent piece the other day uh, saying, you know, COVID-19 is not a, a leveler. COVID-19 is a revealer. And I think that's very true. Um, it's not true to say that the rich and poor are equally impacted by COVID-19. Absolutely false. It, 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 what, it is, what it has done is revealed the, the steady increase in inequality, the, the level of insecurity that a lot of people are living with and feeling, uh, and the challenges that people have in making a living and making their way in the world. And this is what has been laid bare by COVID-19, which is why government intervention has had to be so dramatic because governments, I think, quite rightly said, we really don't have much choice. Whether you're a Republican in the United States or a, a new Democrat in Canada, you're, everybody's doing the same thing. Um, and it's, it's quite fascinating to watch that happen. The question is, what will happen after, I think, is that for me, not just economically, but politically, and I don't want to sound grandiose, but, but spiritually, what, is, yeah. what does it mean? What, is this, what, is it, what does it mean for people? But do they feel the differently? Yeah, but I mean, people are afraid of that word spiritually. And I do this podcast because everyone has a spiritual uh, uh, scaffolding in their life. And whether it's I don't believe in anything or I believe in everything or whatever is between those two things, this is an existential moment. And we live in an existential part of our lives, but we've learned to suppress it and stick with the material because it's like I, I was giving a talk once and I said, uh, I'm religious. And then I kept talking and, and then I came back and said, by the way, when I said I was religious, I, I, most of you heard uh, I'm insane. Uh, so let's move back from the idea that you can have a spiritual life and it can be injected into the way you do your, your own life. I, which leads me to ask you, you had a life as a child of privilege. Your father was a diplomat. You, you ended up as a Rhodes Scholar. You're a white guy. You know, it's all going great. You didn't have to care. You could have just taken the 80-yard head start and gone. What made you actually want to care about how things are going for other people when really your privilege allowed you to, you know, show up at the, um, the Rosedale Tennis Club and just hang out? Were we allowed in there? No, yeah, the Rosedale Tennis Club. <laughs> why, you know, why didn't you end up that guy? I think I think I could have faked it. Um, <laughs> no, no. Um, well, first of all, it's interesting you talk about. You know, uh, yes, of course, I lived. I did lead, did lead, lead and I'm leading uh, in material terms uh, a privileged life. I I, I recognize that. Um, well, I think there's. I guess there's two things. One is my parents were were um, very um very committed and very unpretentious people my father's father worked for tip-top tailors so you know he did not come from uh, a wealthy background um and um both my parents um were very grounded uh, so even though we lived in you know i remember when we moved into a lovely house in geneva that was paid for by the canadian taxpayer uh, my dad was at the UN and I was in high school 
And my dad looked at me, I remember, and he said, um, I hope you understand this isn't, <laughs> this isn't normal. This isn't going to last. And I said, yeah, I, I understand completely. <laughs> and, but I think there's also something in me. I mean, who knows where it, where does it come from? Um, I've always been a, uh, as a kid, a, uh, always questioning and quite contrarian. Um, and would always look around me and see situations that struck me as very uh, unjust and unfair. When I went to public school in the States, um, I was there right after the schools were integrated in Washington, DC. I remember my dad saying, do you, you know, do you, do you, are you happy in school? I said, yeah, absolutely. And he said, well, you know, you, if you wanted to go to another school, you, I said, no, I don't want to go to another school. I went to Gordon Junior High School and it was at the time, I suppose it'd be about 30 or 40% black kids and 60% white kids. And, and, and um, it was an insight. It was just like a whole world opened up. I said, I, you know, you realize you're, you know, you're living in a different place than a lot of the kids who are going home and uh, trying to do their homework. And you just kind of see that in, in people's eyes and you, and you realize it. So I think that's always been a part of what's, what's, um, what's been part of my life. And so that, that's really never left me. Um, and I, I, I've never been interested in um, making money for its own sake. I mean, I, 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 we, we, I live a very comfortable life, but I don't, um, I don't make choices based on, well, how much, how much money will I make if I do that? That's never mm -hmm. been, a, that's never been a motivating factor. Your, one of your grandparents was Jewish. My grandfather, my father's father. When did you was, find that out? When I was uh, I, when I was at university, um, and I was I, I kind of knew. I mean, it's sort of like one of those things when you hear it, you say, "Of course." My father's name was Saul. Um, <laughs> it's right. So you know, people say your father was was trying to hide his past. I said, I don't think he would have. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he grew. He, his his father was a Cohen, uh, and uh, he his family went to Scotland from Lithuania. And he fell in love with my grandmother, who was not Jewish, uh, and whose name was Ray. And uh, when they fell in love, they neither, neither, nobody had any money. Uh, my, my grandmother's family worked in the shipyards near Glasgow, and, and, my, uh, and my father's family, they were, lived in the Gorbals, which is the poorest part of Glasgow. And when they came to Canada, um, the family sort of split up. Um, and, um, it, I, I, I think there are a variety of things that happened. My father talked about it a little bit more as he got older. Uh, it was quite a traumatic time, a lot of conflict within the families. Um, basically they were both thrown out of, uh, Glasgow and, and came to Canada and then, then the families met up again. And then they, then again, my parents, grandparents came to Toronto and my grandfather eventually took my grandmother's name and became became a Ray. Why and did with, you do that? I don't know. I never met him. He died before I was born. Yeah, you wonder because it was well, I think part of it was uh, I mean, just it, it was an intermarriage that was very difficult. Uh, the second is I think uh, the kids were on the stage. Uh, my father and his sister and his my, my uncle Jackie. Uh, were on the stage as kids, and they were called the Three Little Rays of Sunshine. 
I think the, the three little cones of sunshine might have been a little bit harder, to, <laughs> a little bit difficult, but I don't know. I've never, I mean, now my wife, of course, is Jewish and my kids are Jewish. So, I mean, it's Didn't like. Didn't you decide that you were like only going to date Jewish girls? No, that no, time? that was a myth. That was a, somebody, that a some helpful friend made that. That's a completely <laughs> made up. No, I, I, <laughs> no, yeah. no that, that didn't happen. But you did end up finding a, a woman who was Jewish and marrying her. Yes. And so before that, had you been a churchgoer? Had you had a, a yeah. religious life? Yeah. I, when I was when I was uh, growing up, I, I went through quite a religious phase as a teenager. Um, I was an Anglican uh, and was very interested in uh, sort of the Anglo-Catholic movement. And uh, um then as I got older, I, I and and as I learned more about my own um, background and who I you know who I really was in terms of where my past roots were, um, and going to university, I became more skeptical about religion generally. Well, well um, let's back up though. When you were deeply into it, Anglo-Catholicism, as it were, um, what is it that you you found there? What 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 motivated you in there? I think there were a couple of things. One was tradition and liturgy and ritual, which I really enjoyed. The second thing was um, uh, a sense that um, we don't, Jesus was a real person uh, and he was an extraordinary person and made, um, you know, made a huge, had, had such huge impact on the world. You can't say, well, he just didn't exist, although there are some people who say that he didn't, but I think most people say, would say, yes, there was a historical figure. Um, and I, I, I felt that his, what he was saying, his message um, was extremely powerful and had real meaning to me. Um, and um, it still does. Uh, in terms of um, uh, his 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 teachings, but I be I became as I got older I became less persuaded or convinced that um, you know the virgin birth really happened and that and that he was the son of God and he was the Messiah and, and that's all pretty fundamental to to Anglican belief. So if you're if you're an Anglican, you you say the Apostles' Creed in church every week, and when you say the Apostles' Creed, there are things that you say that you have to have to believe are absolutely true. And I became, I guess, at that point, more agnostic as to whether that was actually true, but certainly very respectful of the church's traditions. And um, um, I still occasionally, privately, uh, go to church. Uh, for my own reasons and in my own way in time, but I, I, I think I've, um, I don't think I'd say that I, that's a, that's, I can't say that I'm a believer, but I can say that I, I believe in, profoundly believe in, in the ethical basis of what, uh, of what Christianity is about or supposed to be about, whatever institutional um, deviations have occurred over mm. the last two thousand years. You know, you, when you said, you know, occasionally go to church, I thought, I see, I speak to people about this a fair bit, the, the prayer experience. 
I know people who've been going to synagogue for, you know, 50 years of their life. And if you ask them about the prayer experience, it's hollow. They don't know who they're talking to. They don't know what they're, why they're doing it, but they know that there's a comfort in knowing that that this is that part of the service. So I will be doing this at this moment. Have you had a good or a bad experience of prayer? Well, I mean, I, I don't pray often now. Uh, there are moments of, um, like everyone has, moments of loss and grief uh, and remorse where you, I feel a need to say something uh, to somebody who's not a, who's not an actual person, and reflect on what's what's happening and what's what's taking place. So when my parents died, I participated fully in um, in services. I go frequently go to funerals for friends. I believe in in that as well as you know other services, other times of transition. But if you said you know, do I say my prayers every night? No, um, I don't. But on the other hand. Uh, when I was in the parliament and in the legislature, and we used to say the Lord's Prayer in the morning before the uh, before this the legislature would start. I always tried to be there for that. Now, can you tell me why that's true? I don't yeah. know. Well, I mean, sometimes we need to dig a little deeper into ourselves, or else we get lost in the surface of it all. Don't you think? Oh, totally. But there are various ways of doing that. I mean, I I had a um, a period in my life when I went through therapy. Uh, because I was um, very conflicted and, de and depressed and suffered from terrible anxiety um, and spent a year, um, about a year uh, in therapy. And um, that made a huge difference to me. And that also, I think, made me uh, have, a, have a lot of respect for uh, the spiritual side of life and the spiritual side of myself although i'd say that it hasn't made me any more kind of it's made me less dogmatic about religious truths or or people saying well this is what happened this is what you have to believe i've i've never been well i shouldn't say never but i'm certainly not comfortable inside a a, a dogma whether it's a mm -hmm. political dogma or a religious dogma i'm always a little skeptical of that what is it that you're skeptical about? Well, I think it's that um, there, you know, that people, some people take a great deal of comfort in, in a lot of rules or things you have to believe, or, I mean, in, in New Democrats, you know, you have to believe that public is good and private is bad. You know, the private sector is bad, the public sector is good. And, and after a while you say, well, there's actually, that's actually not true. Um, you know, there there are things that governments do or government bureaucracies or large organizations do, which are probably less efficient and less good than others. There's problems with, um, you know, how those structures operate. And so sometimes you have to say on balance, uh, you need, you actually need both and you need, you need to figure out ways of making some work and ways of making other things work. Um, so it, mo it moves across, it pushes nuance out of the conversation when yeah. once you're dogmatic. Right? Yeah, it does. And, it, and so I don't, I don't, I don't go there. 
and I, there were times in my life when I was very dogmatic politically and, and um, had a tendency to be sort of doctrinaire. I know, um, it's kind of fun at the moment. I mean, <laughs> you know, no, it's, it got, can't, it's got a certain juice to it. Well, you... it gives people comfort. I mean, you know, you listen, I listened to Bernie Saunders and I said, well, I hope he feels better after saying these things because they're so simplistic and kind of just rhetorical. I mean, they don't, it doesn't, it doesn't help matters. Uh, but, but I, but I also respect passion and I respect commitment. Um, and, and I think that, you, you know, as, as I get older, I, I, I try to embrace all of what I have, what I have been <laughs> as you know, people say, well, you used to be, uh, yeah. you know, you were a new Democrat, you were, and you know, you were leader of a party, you were premier of the province. Say, yes, I, I was. And I, I not embarrassed about that. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not saying, go, don't go around, you know, beating myself up for that. I say, that's part of what I believed. That's part of what I felt. Um, and um, I, I embrace it all, but I'm still, I'm still on the journey. Right. <laughs> I haven't, right. I haven't stopped the journey. I haven't stopped thinking about, well, what's the, what's the real, what's the real truth? Well, you know, it's interesting because in the spiritual journey, when someone says, for instance, they're of a, a certain religion, there, or that they believe in God, that what happens for a lot of people is they question because they believe that you think absolutely that there's such a thing. And yet clergy will tell you that their belief in God or their relationship to something uh, that is larger than them in life has a, a high tide and a low tide in their own life, that there's an ebb and flow to all of those things, that Yes, at this moment, I've it, you know it's three weeks before Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and I'm kind of catching the vibe. I'm feeling great, and then it's the middle of the summer, and I'm just like, you know what? I'm pretty far away from feeling the, the wonderfulness of it all. So there's there's it's not about certainty, but there's different ways to believe. Like even like what we thought of as God when we were children, and what what we think of it now. Like when you said you went to the you go to these funerals when you leave, are you, you must have to think of mortality and your own mortality. Does, do you find yourself at these funerals thinking, well, you know, you live and then you die and then it's over? Or do you think there's a soul that carries on? Like those questions are real, but what, what animates in you when you go to one of those? Well, there's two things. One is um, I, when I think of, of God or, uh, as you put it, something greater and bigger than myself. Uh, I think of uh, my accept where the way I think it, think of it is, I accept that there are forces and things about life and about relationships uh, and about good relationships that um, that transcend me that are bigger than me. Um, to put it another way, I, I don't think of myself as having absolute authority, <laughs> if I could borrow that phrase. And I think the problem with, with dictators or people who are would-be dictators is that they, they don't recognize laws that are higher than them. Uh, and, and so the, in my, in my, development of life and I became a lawyer, I, one of the things that I liked about 
the law and still like about the law is that it's a way of remembering that there are things out there that are bigger than you are. And the rules are not just arbitrary rules that are created by finicky people, but they're there in order to try and, and help you live a life that's relatively ordered and not just chaotic and, and manic and, and all about yourself. And again, I think from my own um, challenges with mental health, I think the thing that you realize is that one of the one of the ways in which your mental health can go completely sideways is when you you think it's all about you. You you just become incredibly um, egocentric and and don't aren't able to put your life in any kind of uh, perspective. Um, and I think that's that's what's that's what's uh, necessary and what's missing when you're when you're losing that. So when you say to me, do I think about mortality? Um, yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm 71 years old. I, I'm a lot closer to the finish line than I am to the start. Uh, and I know that. Um, so that one of the things that having mortality in your mind, and, and I can actually remember, talk about a spiritual moment, I can remember reading history books when I was 16 or 17, preparing for some exams, and reading about you know, Europe in the 17th century. And I, it was like, it's kind of, it's, it, when I say it, it sounds so stupid, but I said, all these people are dead. Like, you know, they lived 60 years, 50 years, 40 years, 70 years, 80 years. That's it. It's a finite period of time. And when you're 16, you don't think about that. You think, oh, I'm going to live forever. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's a long time. When you're 71, you think about it quite differently. Think about it. So I, I've always had a sense of, mortality it's always been part of my 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 self-awareness what about is, the soul is is the soul something that you i don't know about? about this i don't think about the soul i think about um what my kids will remember what my grandchildren will know and remember um what my friends will say about me um and what my detractors might say about me um and I think about, um, you know, I think there's a, there's a certain, certain way of feeling that as long as you're, there are people around you who, who have drawn strength from you at some time and in some way, then you've made a contribution and been able to live a good life. But um, see, yes, know, I see that as you, legacy. Like, you know, uh, who have I loved and who has loved me back and what will be, sustained in, in that love is a legacy piece for me. But the soul, the example I tend to go to is my father died at 68 and I was in my early thirties. And uh, the night he died, I get a phone call. Uh, Your father has passed away. And I drive to the hospital and I, I realized that when I got there, that I'd never seen a dead person in my life at that point. And I walk into the room and my father is dead. Uh, and he's kind of half warm and half cold. Um, but I look at his face and I see his eyes and I see that he's not there anymore, that my father is not in that thing anymore, or as Ramdas calls it, that spacesuit with your name on it. Um, and at that moment, I felt that it was irrefutable that there was a soul in this man that animated, just like I would think of you and think there's a soul in this man that made him say, 
I care about the Rohingya. There's a soul in this man that says, this is my life. I better do something with it. Right. But that, that's that animating piece. I, I don't know where it goes, but I'm pretty sure it's floating around out there somewhere. So, yeah, I, well, it's certainly, I certainly have had the same experience. Um, I mean, I'll, very, very parallel because my father had a huge amount of vitality. Uh, and even in his last few years were not good. Uh, he had had some strokes and he was not really himself, but uh, he, uh, he had an incredible amount of energy. Uh, so when you say, you know, just what's the, what's the soul of Saul Ray? I, I, I would tell you what mm. the soul was. It was more than just uh, a legacy. It's much more about, you know, who he really was, what he really was like. Um, and uh, same is true for my mother. And I was, uh, I, 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 I didn't, I wasn't with my father when he died. He died at night uh, in his own bed uh, of, a, of a of heart failure. Uh, but I was with my mother um, when she died. Um, and yeah, I mean, once once it's gone, it's gone. And and um, what's left is is uh, um, your memory of of that being of that quality of life that, uh, that she had or that he had or, or that any of us have. So yeah, there's, there is, when you say what, you know, is there a soul? I say, absolutely. There's a soul. I, how do you define it? Um, that we can argue for quite a long time about what, yeah. what, what the definitions of it are, but sure. I, I believe people have souls. Yeah. You know, it's interesting in the Jewish tradition, right? Where there's a Shiva for a week a mourning period collectively with family and friends and you know that happens but there's an 11 month period as well and the idea is that the soul of the person is hovering closer to earth than further away right. in that 11 months and then after that 11 months it, it moves off into much farther realms than that so sometimes i i i, I intuit you know it's like people say prove god and i say i don't know prove love Right, like <laughs> you, you, you can't bottle it or sell it to anybody. You can. No, try. that's right. No, that's right, and that's why, uh, you know, I, I have some friends who are atheists, um, and they, you know, they just say this is all mumbo jumbo, and this is this, this is that. There's a there's a physiological explanation for everything, and and um, I I I'm not there. Uh, I, I because I I I I'm I'm a I'm a doubter about atheism because I I feel I feel there are so many other forces in the world that that speak to passion and not only to reason. That you know, you say it's got to be reason over passion. You say actually, you, you need both. You you need you need to have a sense of passion about life and about emotion, and you also need to have uh, a strong sense of of. Uh, respect for reason you need both things yeah your your wife's jewish your kids are jewish yes so where does judaism fit into your life now um well i sort of it, it's a lot about family for for us right now um and uh, it's fair to say it's an active discussion as to how we go how how one goes <laughs> forward um, you know, we're not, Arlene's not, a, when we joined Holy Blossom or we were members of Holy Blossom, a reformed synagogue, uh, in, reformed Toronto. synagogue in Toronto, um, 
uh, I used to go to services a lot and uh, got into the rhythm of, uh, of, of Jewish life in, in many ways. Uh, never learned Hebrew to my regret. I think I, a project I still feel I should undertake. Um, but I, I, um, it, it became it became less important to us after our kids um, mm. did their bat mitzvahs and and we're we're not as active as we were. Um, whether that changes or not, I I don't know. Hmm, it's interesting. I wonder what it was about the kids are gone is because you know part of parenting is modeling and giving structure so that your kid can either get into it or just say go away <laughs> you're annoying but now they're gone and you have grandchildren i assume so yes five so are they being brought up jewish uh it's really up to my daughters uh in terms of how that will all work out my oldest grandson is Solomon it was named uh, partly for my father and partly for Arlene's um, grand grandfather. Um, uh, they, but it's it's we don't you know make a big deal about saying well you got to decide this or you got to decide yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That's really going to be up to the kids to to decide. We we certainly um, uh, make it make it a have always made it a part of our. Um, our way of talking to our kids and uh, of celebrating holidays and celebrating family times together. Uh, but we also uh, pay attention to some of the Christian um, mm. events. Like, yeah, like, well, there's, it's like, you know, like, like, like Easter and Christmas and so on. But I mean, they're, they're, they're not moments of, of, of what I would call religious doctrine. They're just moments of, of uh, family celebration. Yeah, and that's one of the things of religion is that it, it codifies, it ritualizes, and allows people to come together as community and, and family, that if you don't have those things, there is no there's no anchors at that point. It's just it's arbitrary. Do do maybe we'll go have a barbecue, maybe we won't. But if it's Passover or it's Christmas or it's Easter, you know everybody gotta show up and go through their stuff together, right? So when I wrote the three questions, my uh, our the rabbi at Holy Blossom uh, was a wonderful man named Dove Marmer, who now lives in Jerusalem mm. with his wife, and we see them when we go. And uh, I re- gave him the book, and he read it. And he called me up, and he said, uh, it's good, uh, but it's not Jewish enough, <laughs> and it's not socialist enough. And I said, well, Dove, that just about sums me up, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, you nailed it. Thanks, Rabbi. <laughs> Talk soon. <laughs> so let me ask you this, though. When you, okay, in terms of, um, there's this question that's asked in spiritual counseling. Of, uh, first, a definition of what a person thinks God is. But then in the conversation about who they are and where they are in their lives, there's where is God in this conversation? I was wondering about something, not necessarily where is God, but where is the spiritual element when I think about the work you do with refugees? When I think of looking into, I've never been in a refugee camp, for instance. I've never seen that. Uh, I grew up with the post-traumatic uh, issue of being Jewish and knowing that there's always this possibility of more historical trauma, you know, Holocaust, all of it. But I'm not the guy who was in there. I'm from Morocco. We didn't go there. 
But when I think of your work with the Rohingya and, and your work in general with, with, with these kinds of projects, when you leave one of those and get on a plane and go home, on the way home, where are you? Where, where is the bigger question in you? And where is this, what is humanity and what's the point of all this? Well, it's, it's, it's not as much, I guess, a spiritual conversation for me as it is a, uh, a one of where I say to myself, how, how are we letting this happen? Uh, the, to the extent that it is happening, and and how how can we um, make it better um, by trying to provide people? But don't with, you wonder how do we? Why do people do this to each other? Don't well, you no, no, no. Maybe because to me the explanations, yeah, there's inhumanity and, the, and there's injustice and there's cruelty, um, and and I actually in this particular case, I mean, you can you can understand. You can kind of go through and dissect the historical architecture of discrimination that ultimately leads to uh, a populist explosion of some kind, and then people being forced to, to move. But right now, Ralph, we have 70, over 70 million people who are living in displaced community, refugee camps of one kind or another. They may not be officially refugee camps. They may just be internal internal camps, IDP camps, um, but there's over 70 million in the world. And it, it took us about 10 years after the end of the Second World War to resolve all of the refugee issues that arose out of the Second World War, uh, directly out of World War II. Um, we have um, a lot of people who are in camps today in, in the case of the Palestinians who've been there for a very long time, since 1948 in some cases, or their families have been. Uh, but in, in other parts of the world, people who've been there for a generation, two generations. And I think what COVID-19 is gonna be again, a, a real revealer uh, of the vulnerability of these communities because um, I occasionally put up a picture on the internet of, a, of the camp, of the Rohingya camp in, Southern Bangladesh, and I say, you tell me where people are going to be socially distancing themselves in this place. You've got 10 or 12 or 14 people living in a, in a little bamboo hut, and you tell me how people are going to be able to socially distance themselves. Yeah. And, and the population itself is physically very vulnerable. They're weak, uh, weaker, they're malnourished, uh, better nourished than they were when they got there, but still very badly fed. It's going to be, it's going to be brutal. But mind you, this is true for Canada as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't have to go to see a refugee camp in Canada to understand how did this happen? Why are we doing this? Go, go and visit, uh, go on reserve, <laughs> go yeah. to a remote community and walk through and say to yourself, how did this happen? And what do we think we're going to do to improve things and make a difference? It's, it's, uh, it, there's a lot of it out there. You don't have to go very far to to see injustice. Is there a place and should there be more of a place or less of a place for spiritual and religious ideas in politics? Because people seem very wary of, hey, hey, don't get me wrong. And Andrew Scheer found himself in big trouble with it last election. But is there a place for saying there are bigger things than us and that there is uh, something else going on here and that there should be some spiritual aspect to how we solve these problems? Well, it's a, that's a very good question. 
and and I don't think there's a simple answer uh, because um, I don't think. And again, I, you're, if you think you're going to get into trouble, wait, wait, wait till we see what happens with this with this next <laughs> sentence. I don't think we we should in any way discourage people from being able to express their most deeply felt religious views uh, in the public space. I don't think that religion uh, should be an exclusively private sphere issue. But um, you could argue that one of the ways in which we got out of the brutality of the response to the Reformation and you know religious battles in Europe for about 150 years was when people basically said, you know what, that's what you believe that on your own time, and I'll believe what I believe on my own time, and we're going to figure out, you know, politics is going to be different. Now, Canada's politics, the New Democratic Party, the social gospel, uh, the founders of the NDP, many of them were ministers. Tommy Douglas was a, mm. was a Baptist preacher. Stanley Knowles was a United Church minister. Um, so you can't say that the social gospel wasn't a deep part of what it is that drove them uh, into the political sphere. They were not, uh, you know, they, they, so you can't say that religion played no part in, in, their, in their thinking. Um, but I think you've got to be careful, very careful about how that can then get transposed into saying, and I'm so convinced that I am right about this about abortion, for example, mm -hmm. that I am going to insist that the public laws have to reflect my own private, my own personal uh, religious opinions. And I, and I think we've all, I think we've always been very careful about that. And I think that's, that's actually not a bad thing because um, there are so many different religious traditions at work in Canada today that if we were to say, well, we're gonna allow one of them to have predominance over all the others would be would be a huge mistake. Yeah, but I think that if we collectively pooled spiritual energies from different traditions, from uh, indigenous to Baha'i and everything else in between, right. that there'd be a whole bunch more conversation that I'd find more interesting. I mean, I think one of the things that I've, I, I can't help but think is in the pursuit of a commodified human being, in the pursuit of, of a, a neoliberal kind of approach to, to what life is and should be and its worth, that we've decided, as they said in the 60s, God is dead. And that's highly convenient because if God is dead, guess who gets to be God? So we become God and we're lousy at it. Right. And we're in this COVID moment where we can st step back from this babble that we've created and go, wait a minute, uh, we're really not doing a great job because we're not actually connected to the interconnection of everything in this world. Yes. Right? So we behave in these ways that says, uh, I'm going to develop policy, political policy that is suburban, um, you know, soccer mom, policy to make sure that we win the 905 and the rings around uh, Vancouver and Montreal, and then we've got this thing. And that kind of commodification that enters into our political world is also soul-destroying in terms of we live in an architecture of this country that is, is not man-made. 
that the, the churches and cathedrals of this country are the are the redwoods, uh, are the oceans, are, are are the prairies that go forever, and yet we're not connected to those things. We're only extractively using those things. So I do think there is a place for that spiritual component to come back in without it being dogmatic. Of course, and one of the things that that moves, I think, the climate change discussion is exactly what you have described. And that is that the origins of the environmental movement, I think, um, really lie in people looking at nature differently and seeing nature as something more permanent and more all-encompassing than whatever economic structures we might temporarily be, be creating. Um, and, and I think that's, that's really a very critical part of the climate change debate is about saying, actually, there's forces in nature that are more powerful than we are, and we'd better learn how to respect them. That's what I, and I keep talking about, there's something going on out there that's bigger than us, and that's bigger than any generation, and that's bigger than, you know, my immediate needs. Um, and, and the more you think about that, the more you see um, the, the spiritual element of this discussion. Uh, there's a spiritual element to the climate change discussion. And sure, look, you don't have to convince me that the political dialogue uh, can be a lot more productive than it's, it's, it is now. Now it's these little bitty sound bites. It's it's little bitty things you have to do and say, it's little things you have to say, one of these and one of those. You can't have a thought that lasts for more than two minutes. Um, it's crazy. It's, I mean, it's not, it's not the way people talk. It's not the way people think, but it's the way that we're forcing or our political leaders feel this is, this is how I feel I have to speak to you. And it's, it's, it is, it is crazy. Yeah. And it, it, it is not an art anymore. In my opinion, you know, when I read uh, reading Martin Gilbert's biography of Churchill and I read the speeches that he makes, even the letters that he writes, and I just think we are just banal fast food politics saying whatever oh, totally. the hell will get 10 seconds of, of, of clip. And having worked in political communications, I realized there's just the gaming of statistics, the gaming of truth, the gaming of, of, of advantage the personal assassination, uh, character assassination that goes on. And I, I, I lament, I, I really find myself sometimes just before this COVID thing, I just found myself going, is this it? I mean, I, I'm a, like you, I'm on the other side. I'm closer to the end than the beginning. Is this it? Is this what we can come up with? So do give me something positive to hold on to as we end this, uh, this conversation. Well, I'm a golfer. And there's a lot of golf games that are decided on the 18th hole. <laughs> so <laughs> it ain't over till it's over. <laughs> that, I mean, my... I'm, a, I'm a big believer. I'm a big believer that, uh, you know, one of the ways of fighting what, what you, I think you and I probably both agree on is, you know, what's wrong or what's, you know, what's the trouble uh, is, is to do things differently. So, you know, you're doing a podcast uh, that's your own that just says, well, I don't have to, I don't have to do this other stuff. I can just do what I want. And mm -hmm. this will be what I think. And, and in some ways, the, 
the great thing about the world today is that, and, and uh, you, you know, you can, one can increasingly uh, build your own platform, like you're, <laughs> and think of, think of what it is you want to create out of that and how you want to express yourself. Um, so yeah, that's what I think, you know, when you say, is this all there is not? I've still got some writing to do. I've still got some music to do. I've still, I've got lots of things I want to do and I'm doing them and I'm, I'm enjoying them as a result of that. If not now, when? If not now, when? Indeed. Barbara, thank you very much. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Good to talk to you, Ralph. Much fun. You, you too. Take care of yourself. Bob yeah. Ray, former Premier of Ontario, former leader of the Liberal Party of Canada, uh, a man who has got way too many files for me to list them all, but trust me, they're all somewhere on Wikipedia. I'm Ralph ben Marigi. This is Not That Kind of Rabbi. Uh, take care of each other, and we'll see you uh, sooner than later.
This podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number 24-7.